This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adina Owen. My Lady Ludlow by Elizabeth Gaskell. Chapter 14. Like many other things which have been declared to be impossible, this report of Captain James being attentive to Miss Brooke turned out to be very true. The mere idea of her agent being on the slightest possible terms of acquaintance with the dissenter, the tradesman, the Birmingham Democrat, who had come to settle in our good, orthodox, aristocratic, and agricultural Hanbury, made my lady very uneasy. Miss Galindo's misdemeanor in having taken Miss Bessie to live with her faded into a mistake, a mere error of judgment in comparison with Captain James's intimacy at Yeast House, as the Brooks called their ugly, square-built farm. My lady talked herself quite into complacency with Miss Galindo, and even Miss Bessie was named by her, the first time I had ever been aware that my lady recognized her existence. But, I recollect, it was a long, rainy afternoon, and I sat with her ladyship, and we had time and opportunity for a long, uninterrupted talk. Whenever we had been silent for a little while, she began again, with something like a wonder, how it was that Captain James could ever have commenced an acquaintance with that man, Brooke. My lady recapitulated all the times she could remember that anything had occurred or had been said by Captain James, which she could now understand as throwing light upon the subject. He said once that he was anxious to bring in the Norfolk system of cropping, and spoke a good deal about Mr. Coke of Holcomb, who, by the way, was no more a cook than I am, collateral in the female line, which counts for little or nothing among the great old commoner families of pure blood. And his new ways of cultivation? Of course, new men bring in new ways, but it does not follow that either are better than the old ways. However, Captain James has been very anxious to try turnips and bone manure, and he really is a man of such good sense and energy and was so sorry last year about the failure that I consented. And now I begin to see my error. I have always heard that town bakers adulterate their flour with bone dust, and of course Captain James would be aware of this and go to Brooke to inquire where the article was to be purchased. My lady always ignored the fact, which had sometimes, I suspect, been brought under her very eyes during her drives, that Mr. Brooks's new fields were in a state of far higher cultivation than her own, so she could not, of course, perceive that there was any wisdom to be gained from asking the advice of the tradesman-turned-farmer. But by and by, this fact of her agent's intimacy with the person whom, in the whole world, she most disliked, with that sort of dislike in which a large amount of the uncomfortableness is combined, the dislike which conscientious people sometimes feel to another without knowing why, and yet which they cannot indulge in with comfort to themselves without having a moral reason why, came before my lady in many shapes. For indeed I am sure that Captain James was not a man to conceal or be ashamed of one of his actions. I cannot fancy his ever lowering his strong, loud, clear voice, or having a confidential conversation with any one. When his crops had failed, all the village had known it. He complained, he regretted, he was angry, or owned himself a fool all down the village street. And the consequence was that, although he was far more passionate than Mr. Horner, all the tenants liked him far better. People in general take a kindlier interest in any one, the workings of whose mind and heart they can watch and understand, 
than in a man who only lets you know what he's been thinking about and feeling by what he does. But Harry Gregson was faithful to the memory of Mr. Horner. Miss Galindo had told me that she used to watch him hobble out of the way of Captain James as if to accept his notice, however good-naturedly given, would have been a kind of treachery to his former benefactor. But Gregson, the father, and the new agent rather took to each other. And one day, much to my surprise, I heard that the poaching, tinkering vagabond, as the people used to call Gregson when I first had come to live at Hanbury, had been appointed gamekeeper. Mr. Gray, standing godfather, as it were, to his trustworthiness, as if he were trusted with anything, which I thought at the time was rather an experiment, only it answered, as many of Mr. Gray's deeds of daring did, it was curious how he was growing to be a kind of autocrat in the village, and how unconscious he was of it. He was as shy and awkward and nervous as ever in any affair that was not of some moral consequence to him. But as soon as he was convinced that the thing was right, he shut his eyes and ran and butted at it like a ram, as Captain James once expressed it in talking over something Mr. Gray had done. People in the village said, they never knew what the parson would be at next, or they might have said where his reverence would next turn up. For I have heard his marching right into the middle of a set of poachers, gathered together for some desperate midnight enterprise, or walking into a public house that lay just beyond the bounds of my lady's estate, and in that extra-parochial piece of ground I named long ago, and which was considered the rendezvous of all the ne'er-do-well characters for miles around, and where a person and a constable were held in much the same kind of esteem as unwelcome visitors. And yet, Mr. Gray had his long fits of depression, in which he felt as if he were doing nothing, making no way in his work, useless and unprofitable, and better out of the world than in it. In comparison with the work he had set himself to do, what he did seemed to be nothing. I suppose it was constitutional, those attacks of lowness of spirit which he had about this time, perhaps a part of the nervousness which made him always so awkward when he came to the hall. Even Mrs. Medlicott, who almost worshipped the ground he trod on, as the saying is, owned that Mr. Gray never entered one of my lady's rooms without knocking down something and too often breaking it. He would much sooner have faced a desperate poacher than a young lady any day. At least, so we thought. I do not know how it was that it came to pass that my lady became reconciled to Miss Galindo about this time, whether it was that her ladyship was weary of the unspoken coolness with her old friend, or that the specimens of delicate sewing and fine spinning at the school had mollified her towards Miss Bessie. But I was surprised to learn one day that Miss Galindo and her young friend were coming that very evening to tea at the hall. This information was given me by Mrs. Medlicott as a message from my lady, who further went on to desire that certain little preparations should be made in her own private sitting-room, in which the greater part of my days were spent. From the nature of these preparations, I became quite aware that my lady intended to do honor to her expected visitors. Indeed, Lady Ludlow never forgave by halves, as I have known some people to do. Whoever was coming as a visitor to my lady, peeress or poor nameless girl, there was a certain amount of preparation required in order to do them fitting honor. 
I do not mean to say that the preparation was of the same degree of importance in each case. I, I dare say, if a peeress had come to visit us at the hall, the covers would have been taken off the furniture in the white drawing room. They never were uncovered all the time I stayed at the hall, because my lady would wish to offer her the ornaments and luxuries which this grand visitor, who never came, I wish she had, I did so want to see that furniture uncovered, was accustomed to at home, and to present to them to her in the best order which my lady could. That same rule, mollified, held good with Miss Galindo. Certain things in which my lady knew she took an interest were laid out ready for her to examine this very day, and, what was more, great books of prints were laid out, such as I remembered my lady had had brought forth to beguile my own early days of illness, Mr. Hogarth's works, and the like, which I was sure were put out for Miss Bessie. No one knows how curious I was to see this mysterious Miss Bessie, twenty times more mysterious, of course, for want of her surname, than again, to try and account for my great curiosity, of which, in recollection, I am more than half ashamed. I had been leading the quiet, monotonous life of a crippled invalid for many years, shut up from any sight of new faces, and this was to be the face of one whom I had thought about so much and so long. Oh, I think I might be excused. Of course, they drank tea in the great hall with the four young gentlewomen who, with myself, formed the small bevy now under her ladyship's charge. Of those who were at Hanbury when first I came, none remained. All were married, or gone once more to live at some home which could be called their own, whether the ostensible head were father or brother. I myself was not without some hopes of a similar kind. My brother Harry was now a curate in Westmoreland, and wanted me to go and live with him, as eventually I did for a time. But that is neither here nor there at present. What I am talking about is Miss Bessie. After a reasonable time had elapsed, occupied, as I well knew, by the meal in the great hall, the measured yet agreeable conversation afterwards, and a certain promenade around the hall, and through the drawing-rooms, with pauses before different pictures, the history or subject at each which was invariably told by my lady to every new visitor, a sort of giving them the freedom of the old family seat, by describing the kind and nature of the great progenitors who had lived there before the narrator. I heard the steps approaching my lady's room where I lay. I think I was in such a state of nervous expectation that if I could have moved easily I should have got up and run away, and yet I need not have been, for Miss Galindo was not in the least altered. Her nose was a little redder, to be sure, but then that might only have been a temporary cause in the private crying I know she would have had before coming to see her dear Lady Ludlow once again. But I could almost have pushed Miss Galindo away as she intercepted me in my view of the mysterious Miss Bessie. Miss Bessie was, as I knew, only about eighteen, but she looked older. Dark hair, dark eyes, a tall, firm figure, a good, sensible face with a serene expression, not in the least disturbed by what I had been thinking, must be such awful circumstances as a first introduction to my lady, who had so disapproved of her very existence. Those are the clearest impressions I remember of my first interview with Miss Bessie. She seemed to observe us all, in her quiet manner, quite as much as I did her, but she spoke very little occupied herself, indeed, as my lady had planned, with looking over the great books of engravings. I think I must have, foolishly, intended to make her feel at ease by my patronage, but she was seated far away from my sofa in order to command the light, 
and really seemed so unconcerned at her unwanted circumstances that she did not need my countenance or kindness. One thing I did like, her watchful look at Miss Galindo from time to time. It showed that her thoughts and sympathy were ever at Miss Galindo's service, as indeed they well might be. When Miss Bessie spoke, her voice was full and clear, and what she said, to the purpose, though there was a slight provincial accent in her way of speaking. After a while, my lady set us two to play at chess, a game which I had lately learned at Mr. Gray's suggestion. Still, we did not talk much together, though we were becoming attracted towards each other, I fancy. You will play well, she said. You have only learned about six months, have you? And yet you can nearly beat me who have been at it as many years. I began to learn last November. I remember Mr. Gray's bringing me Philidor on chess one very foggy, dismal day. What made her look up so suddenly with bright inquiry in her eyes? What made her silent for a moment as if in thought, and then go on with something, I, I know not what, in quite an altered tone? My lady and Miss Galindo went on talking while I sat thinking. I heard Captain James's name mentioned pretty frequently, and at last my lady put down her work and said, almost with tears in her eyes, I could not, I cannot believe it. He must be aware she is a schismatic, a baker's daughter, and he is a gentleman by virtue and feeling, as well as by his profession, though his manners may be at times a little rough. My dear Miss Galindo, what will this world come to? Miss Galindo might possibly be aware of her own share in bringing the world to the pass which now dismayed my lady. For, of course, though all was now over and forgiven, yet Miss Bessie's being received into a respectable maiden lady's house was one of the portents as to the world's future which alarmed her ladyship, and Miss Galindo knew this. But, at any rate, she had too lately been forgiven herself not to plead for mercy for the next offender against my lady's delicate sense of fitness and propriety. So she replied, Indeed, my lady, I have long left off trying to conjecture what makes Jack fancy Jill or Jill Jack. It's best to sit down quiet under the belief that marriages are made for us, somewhere out of this world, and out of the range of this world's reason and laws. I'm not sure that I should settle it down that they were made in heaven to other place seems to me as likely as a workshop, but at any rate, I've given up troubling my head as to why they take place. Captain James is a gentleman. I make no doubt of that ever since I saw him stop to pick up old Goody Blake when she tumbled down on the slide last winter, and then swear at a little lad who was laughing at her and cuff him till he tumbled down crying. But we must have bread somehow, and though I like it better baked at home in a good sweet brick oven, yet as some folks never can get it to rise, I don't see why a man may not be a baker. You see, my lady, I look upon baking as a simple trade, and as such lawful. There is no machine comes in to take away a man's or woman's power of earning their living like the spinning jenny, the old busybody that she is, to knock up all our good old women's livelihood and send them to their graves before their time. There's an invention of the enemy, if you will. That's very true, said my lady, shaking her head. But baking bread is wholesome, straightforward elbow work. They have not got to inventing any contrivance for that yet, thank heaven. It does not seem to me natural, nor according to scripture, that iron and steel, whose brows can't sweat, should be made to do man's work. 
and so i say all those trades where iron and steel do the work ordained to man at the fall are unlawful and i never stand up for them but say this baker brook did knead his bread and make it rise and then that people who had perhaps no good ovens came to him and bought his good light bread and in this manner he turned an honest penny and got rich why all i say my lady is this i i dare say he would have been born a hanbury or a lord if he could if if he was not it is no fault of his that i can see that he made good bread being a baker by trade and got money and bought his land it was his misfortune not his fault that he was not a person of quality by birth that's very true said my lady after a moment's pause for consideration but although he was a baker he might have been a churchman even your eloquence miss galindo shan't convince me that that is not his own fault i don't see even that be begging your pardon my lady said miss galindo emboldened by the first success of her eloquence when a baptist is a baby if i understand their creed aright he is not baptized and consequently he can have no godfathers and godmothers to do anything for him in his baptism you agree to that my lady my lady would rather have known what her acquiescence would lead to before acknowledging that she could not dissent from this first proposition still she gave her tacit agreement by bowing her head and you know our godfathers and godmothers are expected to promise and vow three things in our name when we are little babies and can do nothing but squall for ourselves it is a great privilege but don't let us be hard upon those who have not had the chance of godfathers and godmothers some people we know are born with silver spoons that's to say a godfather to give one things and teach one's catechism and to see that we're confirmed into good church-going christians and others with wooden ladles in their mouths these poor last folks must just be content to be godfatherless orphans and dissenters all their lives and if they are tradespeople into the bargain so much the worse for them but let us be humble christians my dear lady not hold our heads too high because we were born orthodox quality you go on too fast miss galindo i can't follow you besides i do believe dissent to be an invention of the devils why can't they believe as we do it's very wrong besides it's schism and heresy and you know the bible says that it's as bad as witchcraft my lady was not convinced as i could see after miss galindo had gone she sent miss medlicott for certain books out of the great old library upstairs and had them made into a parcel under her own eye if captain james comes to-morrow i will speak to him about these brooks i have not hitherto liked to speak to him because i did not wish to hurt him but supposing there could be any truth in the reports about his intimacy with them but now i will try and do my duty by him and them surely this great body of divinity will bring them back to the true church i could not tell for though my lady read me over the titles i was not any the wiser as to their contents besides i was much more anxious to consult my lady as to my own change of place i showed her the letter i had that day received from harry and we once more talked over the expediency of my going to live with him and trying what entire change of air would do to re-establish my failing health i could say anything to my lady she was so sure to understand me rightly for one thing she never thought of herself so i had no fear of hurting her by stating the truth i told her how happy my years had been while passed under her roof 
but that now I had begun to wonder whether I had not duties elsewhere in making a home for Harry, and whether the fulfillment of these duties, quiet ones they must needs be in the case of such a cripple as myself, would not prevent my sinking into the querulous habits of thinking and talking, in which I found myself occasionally falling, and to which there was the prospect of benefit from the more bracing air of the north. It was then settled that my departure from Hanbury, my happy home for so long, was to take place before many weeks had passed. And as when one period of life is about to be shut up forever, we are sure to look back upon it with fond regret, so I, happy enough in my future prospects, could not avoid recurring to all the days of my life in the hall, from the time when I came to it, a shy, awkward girl, scarcely past childhood, to now, when a grown woman, past childhood, almost from the very character of my illness, past youth, I was looking forward to leaving my lady's house as a residence forever. As it has turned out, I never saw her or it again. Like a piece of sea wreck, I have drifted away from those days, quiet, happy, eventless days. Very happy to remember. I thought of good, jovial Mr. Mountford, and his regrets that he might not keep a pack, a very small pack, of harriers, and his merry ways and his love of good eating, and of the first coming of Mr. Gray, and my lady's attempt to quench his sermons when they tended to enforce any duty connected with education. And now we had an absolute schoolhouse in the village, and since Miss Bessie's drinking tea at the hall, my lady had been twice inside it, to give directions about some fine yarn she was having spun for table nappery, and her ladyship had so outgrown her old custom of dispensing with sermon or discourse that even during the temporary preaching of Mr. Cross she had never had recourse to it, though I believe she would have had all the congregation on her side if she had. And Mr. Horner was dead, and Captain James reigned in his stead. Good steady, severe, silent Mr. Horner, with his clock-like regularity and his snuff-colored clothes and his silver buckles. I have often wondered which one misses most when they are dead and gone, the bright creatures full of life, who are hither and thither and everywhere so that no one can reckon upon their coming and going with whom stillness and the long quiet of the grave seems utterly irreconcilable. So full are they of vivid motion and passion, or the slow, serious people, whose movements, nay, whose very words, seem to go by clockwork, who never appear much to affect the course of our life while they are with us, but whose methodical ways show themselves, when they are gone, to have been intertwined with our very roots of daily existence. I think I miss these last the most, although I may have loved the former best, Captain James was never to me what Mr. Horner was, though the latter had hardly changed a dozen words with me at the day of his death. Then Miss Galindo, I remember the time as if it had been only yesterday, when she was but a name, a very odd one to me. Then she was a queer, abrupt, disagreeable, busy old maid. Now I love her dearly, and I found out that I was almost jealous of Miss Bessie. Mr. Gray I never thought of with love. The feeling was almost reverence with which I looked upon him. 
I have not wished to speak much of myself, or else I could have told you how much he had been to me during these long, weary years of illness. But he was almost as much to everyone, rich and poor, from my lady down to Miss Galindo's Sally. The village, too, had a different look about it. I'm sure I could not tell you what caused the change, but there were no more lounging young men to form a group at the crossroad at a time of day when young men ought to be at work. I don't say this was all Mr. Gray's doing, for there really was so much to do in the fields that there was but little time for lounging nowadays, and the children were hushed up in school, and better behaved out of it, too, than in the days when I used to be able to go my lady's errands in the village. I went so little about now, that I am sure I can't tell who Miss Galindo found to scold, and yet she looked so well and so happy, that I think she must have had her accustomed portion of that wholesome exercise. Before I left Hanbury, the rumour that Captain James was going to marry Miss Brooke, Baker Brooke's eldest daughter, who had only a sister to share his property with her, was confirmed. He himself announced it to my lady, nay, more with a courage gained, I suppose, in his former profession, where, as I have heard, he led his ship into many a post of danger. He asked her ladyship, the Countess Ludlow, if he might bring his bride-elect, the Baptist baker's daughter, and present her to my lady. I am glad I was not present when he made this request. I should have felt so much ashamed for him, and I could not have helped being anxious till I heard my lady's answer if I had been there. Of course she acceded, but I can fancy the grave surprise of her look. I wonder if Captain James noticed it. I hardly dared ask my lady after the interview had taken place what she thought of the bride-elect, but I hinted my curiosity, and she told me that if the young person had applied to Mrs. Medlicott for the situation of cook, and Mrs. Medlicott had engaged her, she thought that it would have been a very suitable arrangement. I understood from this how little she thought a marriage with Captain James R.N. suitable. About a year after I left Hanbury, I received a letter from Miss Galindo. I think I can find it. Yes, this is it. Hanbury, May 4th, 1812. Dear Margaret, you ask for news of us all. Don't you know there is no news in Hanbury? Did you ever hear of an event here? Now, if you have answered yes in your own mind to these questions, you have fallen into my trap, and never were more mistaken in your life. Hanbury is full of news, and we have more events on our hands than we know what to do with. I will take them in the order of the newspapers, births, deaths, and marriages. In the matter of births, Jenny Lucas has had twins not a week ago. Sadly, too much of a good thing, you'll say. Very true, but then they died, so their birth did not much signify. My cat has kitten, too. She has three kittens, which, again, you may observe, is too much of a good thing, and so it would be if it were not for the next item of intelligence I shall lay before you. Captain and Mrs. James have taken the old house next to Pearson's, and the house is overrun with mice, which is just as fortunate for me as the king of Egypt's rat-ridden kingdom was to Dick Whittington. But for my cat's kittening, decided me to go and call on the bride in hopes she wanted a cat, which she did, like a sensible woman, as I do believe she is, in spite of baptism bakers, bread and Birmingham, and something worse than all, which you shall hear about, if you'll only be patient. As I had got my best bonnet on, the one I bought when poor Lord Ludlow was last at Hanbury in ninety-nine, I thought it a great condescension in myself, always remembering the date of the Galindo baronetcy, to go and call on the bride, though I don't think so much of myself in everyday clothes as you know. But who should I find there but my lady Ludlow? 
she looks as frail and delicate as ever, but is, I think, in better heart ever since that old city merchant of a Hanbury took it into his head that he was a cadet of the Hanburys of Hanbury and left her that handsome legacy. I'll warrant you that the mortgage was paid off pretty fast, and Mr. Horner's money, or my lady's money, or Harry Gregson's money, call it what you will, is invested in his name all right and tight, and they do talk of his being captain of his school, or Grecian, or something, or going to college. After all, Harry Gregson, the poacher's son, well, to be sure we are living in strange times. But I have not done with the marriages yet. Captain James is all very well, but no one cares for it now. We are all so full of Mr. Gray's. Yes, indeed, Mr. Gray is going to be married, and to nobody else but my little Bessie. I tell her she will have to nurse him half of the days of her life. He is such a frail little body, but she says she does not care for that, so that his body holds his soul, it is enough for her. She has a good spirit and a brave heart, has my Bessie. It is a great advantage that she won't have to mark her clothes over again, for when she has knitted herself her last set of stockings, I told her to put G for Galindo, if she did not choose to put it for Gibson, so she should be my child if she was no one else's. And now... You see, it stands for Gray, so there are two marriages, and what more would you have? And she promises to take another of my kittens. Now as to deaths, old Farmer Hale is dead. Poor old man. I should think his wife thought it a good riddance, for he beat her every day that he was drunk, and he was never sober in spite of Mr. Gray. I don't think, as I tell him, that Mr. Gray would ever have found courage to speak to Bessie as long as Farmer Hale lived. He took the old gentleman's sin so much to heart— and seemed to think it was all his fault for not being able to make a sinner into a saint. The parish bull is dead, too. I was never so glad in my life. But they say we are to have a new one in his place. In the meantime, I cross the common in peace, which is very convenient just now, when I have so often to go to Mr. Gray's to see about furnishing. Now, you think I have told you all the Hanbury news, don't you? Not so. The very greatest thing of all is to come. I won't tantalize you, but just out with it, for you would never guess it. My Lady Ludlow has given a party, just like any plebeian among us. We had tea and toast in the blue drawing room, old John Footman waiting with Tom Diggles, the lad that used to frighten away crows in Farmer Hale's fields, following in my lady's livery, hair powdered and everything. Mrs. Medlicott made tea in my lady's own room. My lady looked like a splendid fairy queen of mature age, in black velvet and the old lace which I have never seen her wear before since my lord's death. But the company, you'll say, why we had the parson of Clover, and the parson of Headley, and the parson of Marybank, and the three parsonesses, and Farmer Duncan, and the two Miss Duncans, and Mr. Gray, of course, and myself, and Bessie, and Captain and Mrs. James, yes, and Mr. and Mrs. Brooke, think of that! I am not sure the Parsons liked it, but he was there, for he had been helping Captain James to get my lady's land into order, and then his daughter married the agent, and Mr. Gray, who ought to know, says that, after all, Baptists are not such bad people. And he was right against them at one time, as you may remember. Mrs. Brooke is a rough diamond, 
to be sure. People have said that of me, I know, but being a Galindo, I learnt manners in my youth, and can take them up when I choose. But Mrs. Brooke never learnt manners, I'll be bound. When John Footman handed her the tray with the teacups, she looked up at him as if she were sorely puzzled by that way of going on. I was sitting next to her, so I pretended not to see her perplexity and put her cream and sugar in for her, and was all ready to pop it into her hands when who should come up but that impudent lad Tom Diggles. I call him lad, for all his hair is powdered, for you know that it is not natural gray hair, with his tray full of cakes and what not, all as good as Miss Medlicott could make them. By this time, I should tell you, all the parsonesses were looking at Mrs. Brooke, for she had shown her want of breeding before, and the parsonesses, who were just a step above her in manners, were very much inclined to smile at her doings and sayings. Well, what does she do but pull out a clean bandana pocket handkerchief, all red and yellow silk, spread it over her best silk gown, as it was like enough a new one, for I had it from Sally, who had it from her cousin Molly, who is a dairy woman at the Brookses, that the Brooks were mighty set up with an invitation to drink tea at the hall. There we were, Tom Diggles even on the grin. I wonder how long it is since he was own brother to a scarecrow, only not so decently dressed. And Mrs. Parsonus of Headley. I forget her name, and it's no matter, for she's an ill-bred creature. I hope Bessie will behave herself better was right down bursting with laughter, and as near a hee-haw as ever a donkey was, when what does my lady do? Ay, there's my own dear Lady Ludlow. God bless her. She takes out her own pocket handkerchief, all snowy cambric, and lays it softly down on her velvet lap, for all the world as if she did it every day of her life, just like Mrs. Brooke, the baker's wife, and when the one got up to shake the crumbs into the fireplace, the other did just the same, but with such a grace and such a look at us all. Tom Diggles went red all over, and Mrs. Parsonus of Headley scarce spoke for the rest of the evening, and the tears came into my old silly eyes, and Mr. Gray, who was before silent and awkward in a way which I tell Bessie she must cure him of, was made so happy by this pretty action of my lady's that he talked away all the rest of the evening and was the life of the company. Oh, Margaret Dawson, I sometimes wonder if you're the better off for leaving us, to be sure you're with your brother and blood is blood, but when I look at my lady and Mr. Gray, for all they're so different, and I would not change places with any in England. Alas, alas, I never saw my dear lady again. She died in 1814, and Mr. Gray did not long survive her, as I dare say you know. The Reverend Henry Gregson is now vicar of Hanbury, and his wife is the daughter of Mr. Gray and Miss Bessie. End of chapter 14. Recording by Adina Owen. End of My Lady Ludlow by Elizabeth Gaskell.